Welcome to Times Tall Tales. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Hannah Cobb from the University of Manchester, who's very kindly come to talk to me about sites she's been working on since 2006, Ardnamurkan, also known as Swaddle Bay. So, what? How did it start with this site? What What sort of happened to get you to the process of being where you are now, 14, 15 years later? Um. Oh well. So yeah, so so Ardnamurkin is the peninsula of land that it's on, and then Swaddle Bay is the area. And I guess that's kind of why we've been able to dig on it for 15 years, is because it's not necessarily one specific site. We've ended up excavating multiple sites across the, the landscape. But so so we've been digging there since 2006 because um so I did a um my so for my doctoral research i was looking at sites that had uh, both the presence of well i was looking at sites that had mesolithic activity at them and i was creating quick time virtual reality panoramas which at the time involved a very complicated camera setup and involved a day's worth of processing photographs that were taken on a very specific technical tripod uh, and literally just as I finished my PhD they created phones where you could just do that really easily um, but anyway at the, uh, at the time it was all very difficult and technical and so I was visiting as many sites in the uh, Northern Irish Sea Basin as possible that as visiting as many sites that had a mesolithic presence uh, and also some sites where there was potentially a neolithic presence as well and i was taking panoramas at these sites and doing these kind of observations and building up a database to look to see if there was kind of trends in the way that sites were experienced in the landscape uh, um, at different points you know depending on the different types of site they were and the age they were within the the mesolithic and the late meso early neo there are hardly any sites in the UK, well, no sites in the UK really that have this lovely progression of Mesolithic to Neolithic. Um, but there was a big trend in the early 2000s of people identifying particularly shell, um, uh, like Neolithic chamber tombs that might have been built on a shell midden. And on the west coast of Scotland, one of them was Clad Andrus, which I am pronouncing very badly, and it's really, it should be pronounced Clach English. Um, and this is a Neolithic chamber tomb uh, that is in Swaddle Bay. And so I went to visit it for my doctoral research, and um, I, my dad came with me. He was carried, he was like, my my tripod carrier that he was like, helping me out um and also at the, um, I think at the time I don't think I could drive so he was driving he was my chauffeur my chauffeur and tripod carrier and we came <laughs> over the edge of, of Swordle Bay and we um we looked at it and we looked down into the bay and my dad said to me oh this place has got a really magical feeling to it. <laughs> and mm, yeah. so I went down to Clyde Andrus and I took the quick time panorama there. Mm. And then we went back up the hillside and we looked back over it and my, my dad was like, there's lots, dad isn't in any way uh, an archeologist. My dad, dad 
doesn't listen to me waffling on um but he he said oh this this place really does seem like it's got some potential and then i came back to manchester and um a person who was uh doing po doing doctoral study at the same time or doing a, a, a postgraduate study at the same time was phil richardson who is now one of the people in a uh, who, who runs archaeology scotland the uh, outreach okay. charity but at the time he and i were both doing postgraduate study at manchester and we were talking about all of these sites with the potential mesons and wouldn't it be brilliant to go and excavate one and so we went to Cladendris uh, because no one was working on the Ardnamurkin Peninsula uh, and the only attention that it had had was that this Neolithic chamber tomb had been served in the 70s other than that literally no one the real commission of ancient might have been in the 80s and sort of just gone around and made a record of some sites but literally no one had done anything else and that was the point where we were like oh, well we could do this other people were looking at the other potential mesoneo transition sites in the south west of scotland we're like well we could just we could probably do this and you know we were very at the very start of our careers and so we had that kind of like naive optimism let's just yeah. go and dig this site it was a scheduled ancient monument so we were like we'll just well we'll just do some initial uh, explorations around the outside of the scheduled area and then we'll apply for scheduled monument consent and it'll just all be great yeah. and phil had been working on um phil had been working on um chris fowler and vicky cummings excavations of bar grennan and other neolithic chamber tombs in the southwest of scotland and they had also found a sort of amazing early bronze age activity at these tombs so they thought they were neolithic okay. and they'd found early bronze age stuff so we were like well let's just go in you know hopefully we'll find the whole gamut of like early prehistory well uh, you know prehistoric trans transitions from the mesolithic to the neolithic and then the neolithic to the bronze age this is what we'll look for and so that's why we went there and that's why we called it the ardnamurkin transitions project uh, or atp for short because that's what we were that's what we were looking for that's 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 not a short story <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the background to why we went there yeah. oh, i like it it's very optimistic very you know sort of we can go and do this and obviously it's, it's obviously paid off because it's well we might not be able going back there this summer but hopefully next year or at some point you can actually you can go back again you know all these years later yeah it's so it's a it's then the project has grown very organically the re the reason the long and short of it is that the reason that nobody has done any archaeological work in the art on the Ardnamurkin peninsula until we rocked up there was because it's extremely remote uh, and so from Manchester, when we drive in the minibus, so the minibus is limited to 62 miles an hour. So it takes us, and with stops, it takes us about 12 to 13 hours to get there from Manchester in the minibus. Wow. Um, so like it takes four hours to get to Glasgow, you know, you can get to Glasgow like that. And then, and, and quicker if you're in a normal car. And then you go past Loch Lomond and and things it's great but and then it's basically just sort of gets a bit wigglier from all the roads get a bit wigglier from mm. up there and the Ardnamurkin Peninsula it's a, I, it, the sort of main bit of driving is only about 35-40 miles but it takes about two and a half 
hours of driving because it's a single track road so it's really remote and like until the 1950s it didn't have any roads uh, everyone traveled around it by boat so it's it's a part of the uk mainland but in fact it's got that kind of isolation of an island particularly okay. in our car based in our car based society it literally has one road that goes down the peninsula and then the road splits and goes either to the north part of the peninsula or to the end of the peninsula and that's that's it um so it's extremely remote so that's why no one had been there <laughs> but also that the it's really great for the archaeology so what we've found we've excavated is that this landscape where it, which has got this this beautiful bay it's a beautiful bay like it's just so gorgeous it's 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 um, got a, a lovely burn a lovely little stream running down the middle of it um it's got sort of like lovely fields there isn't much farming land on the peninsula um and their major income is from things like deer stalking and things like that so there's twice as many deer as there are permanent residents on the Arden American Peninsula uh so it's 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 got this very little sort of bit of good farming land so you come down into this bay and you've got these lovely fields you've got this lovely uh burn that runs down the middle of it goes this beautiful sheltered harbour this sheltered beach it's so it's just so beautiful so we swim in the sea when we're there and it's so lovely and it's really nice there's like seals and otters and sometimes we've seen dolphins and oh it's just so lovely and right there about sort of um 150 meters 200 meters from the shore is the chambered tomb right in the middle of it mm. and so that was the focus of our excavations and we, we got scheduled monument consent and we excavated it but but it's been quite an organic project so we've realized as we've worked in this landscape that there is more and more and more stuff and so we changed the project from being about transitions in prehistory to being about sort of transitions in life way through through time so so yeah it's it's it, that's that's kind of why we've been able to carry on excavating there because we've just sort of ended up excavating something from I think pretty much every period from the Neolithic onwards wow it's been pretty cool yeah that is been very good. impressive so it is it is almost sort of like looking through stages it is kind of transition I can see where the idea started from like it being transitions and like but to have it from all the way down that is I mean that's quite unique I think I would have to say <laughs> yeah I, I don't know there aren't many sort of comparable big landscape projects um that have sort of taken residence in a landscape for for such a long amount of time like they're like things like obviously i'm really influenced by things like the um bodmin moore les Kernick stone worlds work that mm. barbara bender and sue hamilton and chris tilly did um and that, that i don't think there are many sort of comparable projects where people have come come back to a landscape so regularly over and it's been that kind of thing where we were very focused on uh, dangerous initially and then we started doing testing and geophysics and sort of a, a survey of all of the um, uh, upstanding features across just our study area is only really a couple of kilometres this this bay but it's it's once you, when you once you get your eye into a landscape you can see so many things going on um, and um, so 
through the geophysics we've identified all sorts of other prehistoric activity across the landscape. There's on the very edge of our study area there is a site that had been identified as a potential Iron Age promontory fort um, so we so you know we've we've excavated that it wasn't scheduled um, so we've we've excavated that um, and then in our sort of uh, pursuing of we we wanted to sort of sample because we're this kind of thrilling kind of people we wanted to sample field boundaries uh, <laughs> and understand sort of changes in the kind of you know boundedness of the landscape over time um, and in doing that we had noticed on the foreshore to respect rig and furrow so like some medieval field systems okay. so we went and excavated there in 2011 and that ended up being the only Viking boat burial from the UK land. Uh, so that was our sort of, that's our mega find <laughs> that uh, was, uh, that then got us, uh, um, you know, on the telly, I guess. And, uh, I the Viking that. boat burial was, in the, that we excavated, it was exhibited in the British Museum in 2014 in the Vikings Life and Legend excav uh, uh, exhibition and all of that kind of stuff. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so so it's it's been really cool in that regard that we have been able to look at those kind of changes. I, you know, the, one of the things that's deficient um, in many ways. Well, there's two things that are deficient. Um, the first one I'll address this crucial deficiency is that I said at the start that we went there to look for the Mesolithic Neolithic transition, and then I said, and we've excavated everything from the Neolithic period all the way through. So, the in summary, we haven't ever found anything Mesolithic oh, <laughs> in, in this valley. Which, given that that's my sort of area of uh, like period expertise, it's been very disappointing that we've never found anything mm. Mesolithic here. But in it, we may still find we found a couple of sites in our excavation last season of excavation team that we're sort of going back and, and look at there's there's quite a lot of interesting sort of um uh, interesting activity in relation to sea level change in the bay um and so it might just be that we've sort of need to look in different places for for uh, the Mesolithic and we focus quite a lot on the areas that have been farmed but the Mesolithic activity might be in kind of the areas that have haven't seen as much as much farming and things so it's so so we you know we, we're still the optimism that drove us at the start is still there we may still yet find the Mesolithic but crucially Clad Angus, this Neolithic chamber tomb, which might have been built on a shell midden. That was the whole narrative. Was it built on a shell midden? Was it that like, you know, Neolithic people saw a site that was spiritually important in the Mesolithic and then they built their tomb on top of it. Um, we know that at Mesolithic say people lay laid their dead out and excarnated their dead on the the, the shell middens um, and in some places deposited funky bits of of human remains so not funky as in gross as in interesting ways so mm, yeah. there's the example from not quite of human hand remains on uh, like human hand bones on top of a seal flipper uh, on top of seal oh. bones so they obviously sort of we're doing some very interesting things with human and animal bodies at the these mesolithic shell, late mesolithic shell middens not so far away from where we're working so and there is loads of mesolithic activity around the um the the the, the west coast of scotland and the various islands and so and there has been mesolithic 
lithics found around the peninsula and what had made the suggestion, what had been the root of the suggestion that there might have been a Neolithic, a Mesolithic shell midden underneath and this Neolithic tomb underneath Cardangerous. When Dwee Henschel went and surveyed the tomb in the 1960s, 1970s, um, she saw a rabbit hole and the rabbit hole had some shells coming out of it. And that is literally the basis of everyone going, well, there might be a Mesolithic shell midden there. <laughs> so, so the reality is that um, the tomb itself is amazing. Like, because we've been with it over such a period of time, that has got all of these kind of multi-period activity happening at it. Um, and the earliest radiocarbon dates, the earliest activity that we've got there is, um, um, sort of some cremated human remains and placed in uh, a kind of dip in the sand uh, and then the, the tomb, the first part of the tomb being built on top of it um, and they date to 3750 BC. So that's early Neolithic and quite early indeed for the west coast of Scotland but it's not the Mesolithic, it's not Mesolithic dates. Um, and But the reason I think there was because the, the tomb itself now is like a kind of trapezoid shape and it's uh, it's really long, it's about 60 metres long uh, and okay. it's built basically on top of the raised beach. So it's so in at the very end of the Mesolithic, um, there was quite, there was like big sea level rise in on the west coast of Scotland. All of Scotland had been like compressed by glaciers and then it rose up a little bit uh, but there was a point where all the ice water melt after the, the, the ice age meant that it was there was quite a lot of sea, sea inundation. So sea levels were quite a lot higher at the end of the Mesolithic. And then as the land has risen, sea levels have, have fallen. So this Neolithic tomb is built on the raised beach on what in the Mesolithic period would have been the beach. So it's built on sand, it's built on shells. And it had had quite a lot of burrowing activity. So, you know, some rabbits had obviously just dug down into some sandy, shelly, beachy material, hoit that out. And then Audrey Henschel happened to see it and speculate that perhaps there was a shell mid in there. But as far as as, as our inventors have, have, have gone, we found that there hasn't been any uh, active there. So that's the crucial. I think I was saying there was two things that I that were issues. I can't remember what the other thing was. I can't remember. I got so distracted by the the uh, is there the Mesolithic there that I that I can't remember what I was saying. <laughs> Can you remember, Laura? Sorry. Um, no, well, in fairness, I think it's quite. I just love how like this is all based off some shells and a rabbit hole to start off with. They're like this, <laughs> they're sort of like the foundation of such a, like a lengthy excavation that's been going on and you've got all like yeah. these multi sort of multi periods going on and it's I'm always quite I don't want to say reluctant when it comes to it I'm always slightly like curious when it comes to sort of coastal sites because um, sort of looking at sea changes and things like that like what you mentioned there's quite like a risk of things maybe disappearing or being damaged but it doesn't necessarily seem like that's happened here I mean you've found a boat burial which is incredibly unique and on the Spain, and I just wanted to sort of ask a slightly more technical question about how you actually went about finding that. 
in a way the west coast of scotland is lovely because the kind of issues that you have with sea level rise you've got the opposite in the west coast of scotland you've got isostatic rebounds so you've got these raised beaches so the sea level has fallen so actually you've got sort of sites it, it's kind of partly why people were attracted to to these bits of land a little bit later because you've got kind of you know some nice nice well-drained bits that were once upon a time the back of the beach uh, and are now not and they're, they're quite good for a bit of farming on and things and that's in terms of the viking boat burial why we why that's there um uh, why why we why, why we discovered it as it were because they're so right down on the foreshore just just literally at the sort of there's the beach and then there's all the stones that the kind of storm tides have thrown up and then just behind that um there is a, a little area uh right next to the burn as well so right next to the river there's a little area where there had clearly been quite a lot of rig and furrow farming so you know like the uh, lumps and bumps that you get um the kind of medieval strip farming that you get um and in this part of the world this is a boring aside, but uh, so I don't know what I'm going into. In this part of the world, uh, they put uh, seaweed in the side bits, in the, the, the lower bits, uh, so that it would sort of fertilise these little raised plots okay. of land. So there you go. Exciting, exciting seaweed facts as an aside. <laughs> um, and so this rig and furrow was very visible, um, but it was also really clear that it respected just the very small lump that um, stuck out um, uh, next to the burn. We thought it might have been a sheiling, so like a kind of farmer's hut where, you know, uh, you know, like a shepherd's hut okay. where they might shelter, you know, the weather's bad in the summer or something like that. Or um, there had been various bridge footings crossing the, the burn, crossing the river. Um, some of them are marked on very early OS maps and things. And we thought it could be something to do with like bridge construction. Um, and also there are, as I mentioned, there's all of these kind of um, sort of uh, boundaries relating to all of the multiple years of farming that have gone on in this landscape. Um, so we'd said we'd put some exp experimental trenches into some of these sort of boundary uh, uh, um, features uh, to see what they were and to learn a bit more about them and develop a typology of them. As I mentioned, fascinating people uh, who love, mm. love seaweed facts and field <laughs> boundaries. And so we, we opened uh, a trench over this lump um, and we had done a sort of small bit of experimental, um, we'd opened a small experimental trench a few years earlier, but it, it had been a very small, um, you know, like just a quick sort of exploratory mm. sort of look at it. We didn't really touch the, the boat burial with that. We could just see that there was something there that needed for us to come back and further investigate it. But we really were, were, were pretty clear that what we were excavating was um, um, a not prehistoric and probably was related to the medieval or post-medieval farming landscape that we were looking at. And so uh, we deturfed it and literally the moment we deturfed it, it was a boat-shaped setting of stones. <laughs> and then uh, we were excavating, the year that we did that, we were excavating, our main site of excavation was one of the post-medieval settlements that's there. So later on, uh, before the Highland Clearances, 
Swordle Bay, this very small area, had three what they call backens, which are these like little townships. So it had these three post-medieval townships, and we excavated one of those and the the houses relating to one of those, and um, uh, which is really cool because then it sort of brings us up to the point where the landscape was cleared for the Highland clearances. So really amazing. So we were up on the side of the hill with that, and part of the team were down just investigating this uh, feature and so I, I and I wasn't I wasn't uh, in the part of the deturfing team and they came back that evening and were like these these stones they're in the shape of a boat <laughs> nice <and subtle. laughs> it might be that we've got something quite significant so uh, so so then we sort of excavated it properly stratigraphically three-dimensionally recorded everything so it's really nice because we've got the um you know obviously like the three-dimensional recording of where all the finds were all of the rivets and all of that kind of thing the little metal bits that would have held the boat together the 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 soil conditions vary really wildly just in our little study area so like at Cladendris, at the neolithic chamber too which also as an aside abutting that we discovered a bronze age curb cairn and a whole series of other kind of bronze age burial activities and in those we've got really amazing human remains preservation uh, so in the kist of the bronze age curb cairn we've got some really interesting things going on in the uh, chamber of the neolithic tomb we've got all these kind of bundles of bones and humans and animals all mixed and interesting stuff like that uh, the viking boat burial is less than a hundred meters from that but because it's sort of further down on the foreshore the soil is really acidic okay and king body um, that we have preserved, the only Viking body bits we have, are two teeth, two molars, and that is it. And the only bits of boat we have preserved are where the wood of the boat was touching metal and it has been mineralised around the metal. So we, so we have hardly any wood um, uh, and hardly any Viking burial <laughs> in the sense of hardly any bone and hardly any wood but we can tell you exactly where the boat was because we've got all of the rivets that held each of the bits of wood together so we've got all of those the the you know the skeleton effectively of the mm. boat and we can and we know where the body was because we've got all of the artifacts that were placed on and around the body and the teeth uh, uh, obviously are sort of well we 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 think they were all in, in situ um so near the teeth you know, there was things like the um, Bronze Age, uh, the, the sorry, bronze copper alloy ring pin that would have gone around their neck and would have held their cloak or their shroud. There was like a drinking horn that was next to their face and things like that. Whereas then, you know, the sword was by the side of their body. The shield was on top of their body. So from the positioning of all the artifacts, mm. we can kind of get a sense of where the where the body was, even though we only have two teeth. It's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's, in like summary, a... in summary, it's really cool. <laughs> you get like a like a like a shadow picture almost. You sort of get sort of the outside skeleton. You get sort of pieced together where it would have been because you can sort of see the the remnants of what's left. Because obviously, you know, it, it is things like the metal and the bits of wood attached to metal that are going to be really the only things left at that point. So it's it's like a it's like a giant puzzle it's like a giant metal puzzle <laughs> which is really cool wow yeah 
It's amazing, and it, but and it's amazing the kind of variation in the preservation. So, like I said, there's no wood, there's no real bone apart from the teeth, and yet you can get so much from what we have got. So, the mineralized wood. Um, that's all been looked at by uh, an expert who can still talk about the type of wood, uh, each of the different parts of, you know, what kind of wood was the shield was made out of and, and the, the, the boat was made out of. I can't remember off the top of my head. The, the, the sword was in a scabbard um, and um, then textile from the Vikings clothes or shroud uh, touched that and was mineralized so we've got the the detail of the textiles so we had the textile specialist being able to tell us all about that and the way that it was all made and the way the scabbard was made and things we've got um from those two teeth just from those two teeth we know that the viking was a man we know that they were probably born uh in norway we know that well they, there's there's a few places they could have been born but most likely norway mm. we know that the most common most similar uh, stable isotope signature to theirs is a burial at neep on the uh, outer hebrides um and so you know potentially this is somebody who grew up in the same place and you know voyaged on the same voyage okay. um or you know or voyages yeah, so we know loads of stuff. And I think, like, in a way, this is kind of why I wanted to talk about Arden Merkin and about Swordle Bay. This is why it's so cool. Well, there's so many reasons why it's so cool. <laughs> but the, the Viking, the Viking is a is a really interesting representation of what what we find throughout the the pre the the throughout the history of the place. So this Viking was was basically well, they had like artifacts that must have come from that had come from Dublin. Uh, they had so like they had a bead. Uh, we found a bead actually in the chamber tomb. The Vikings were obviously footling around in the chamber tomb, uh, and the bead is is of, of a specific Irish type. So and the the ring pin was an Irish type and things like that. So they've got material culture that comes from Ireland. They've got um, a, a whetstone for sharpening their tools, which is made of a very specific type of Norwegian schist. So they've got material culture that comes from Norway. They're probably sort of from Nor the grew up in Norway mm. at least themselves or spend the first their childhood years there. They've got connections, local connections, but potentially with like Neep on the uh, on uh, in the Outer Hebrides. Um, they've got sort of all of these different things going on. They've they had a sickle, they had metal working stuff. So they they're like this person that embodies all of these journeys that must have been going along along the west coast of Scotland, and then also their sword is a type of kind of Central Europe. European sword, the pommel and the decoration, mm. is something that sort of fits in with Carolinian, like Central European uh, traditions. So they've also got some kind of connection to Central Europe. They've got uh, obviously their connection to Norway, connection to Ireland, connection down the Irish Sea, local connections. And, you know, they're obviously sort of doing farming and things like that in this local area as well. So they've got all of this kind of, all of these kind of connections. So in the Bronze Age curb cairn that I mentioned, we've got Whitby Jet. Um, so we found a, 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 a Bronze Age, some of the beads from a Bronze Age space of place, plate necklace that are made out of Whitby Jet. So even in the Bronze Age, the people in Swordle Bay have got connection ever gone to Whitby on their holidays or whatever. they've got connections with North East Yorkshire going on 
um, even if that's through trade or whatever, mm. they've got that kind of material culture. At the at the um, uh, Iron Age Promontory Ford, for we found uh, a, a bead that probably made out of um, uh, Baltic um, amber um, or something along those lines. And again, we've got sort of uh, sort of jet shale kind of bits and bobs. So we, what we have in the region, the Iron Age, probably the Neolithic as well, and then into the Viking period, is like this this bit of land that right now seems so isolated. It's just so isolated. Mm. It's so hard to get there. It takes thirteen hours. <laughs> but archaeologically, what the, the archaeology is saying is that this place was like cosmopolitan. Everyone there was so cosmopolitan. They were like getting their material culture from all over the place. They were bringing it back to, to, to this bay or trading it with other people and that they had connections right out across across Europe throughout prehistory and into and into the, the historical period as well. So it's really so that's that's one of the things that is so immensely cool about it. So that we've been able to build up this picture where although there's been transitions and change in the way that people have lived and believed leave through time they've always sort of had these kind of connections reaching out to the rest of the world and that's i, I think it's, it's really it's really <laughs> that's i'm just waffling on now but it's really that's that's uh it's it's really it's really cool it's amazing to think that such a remote place to us <laughs> is literally just like a multicultural hub for like all over the world like you wouldn't think that just some peninsula on the west coast has just got all of this stuff and like I mean, for us in a car, you know, 12, 13 hours is a lot, but didn't exactly have a car in <laughs> Neolithic. It would have taken a lot more effort to get these kind of things. It's really impressive, sort of the lengths that some of these things have traveled. I mean, you sort of think you're over on that side of Scotland and then you're over in Yorkshire and you've got stuff from there and sort of transferring to one to another is, it's a very deliberate effort. You know, it's not just sort of gonna accidentally end up there. That's, that, I agree, it's very, very cool. <laughs> um, I'm conscious that you, you may have to go soon, so I just want to ask you, I know you can't go back this year, um, but what, what are you kind of hoping is going to be there? Apart from Mesolithic stuff, what are you kind of hoping to go back to? Well, as you rightly identified, we've been excavating there for a very long time, <laughs> and we've published some bits and bobs so our may the main publication that that we've got out is uh, the sort of report on the viking boat burial although that was before we had several of the kind of specialist reports um so it's really incumbent on us to publish this amazing site we've not published anything um well we've published a couple of sort of interim articles but everything about Clad Andreas, about what's effectively a Bronze Age funerary landscape that we've discovered, about the, the promontory fort Dunmurketh, um, the boat burial, and then all the, the post-medieval and post-medieval settlements. Um, that story needs telling. Um, and so actually, we are going to use this season, this summer, this kind of time where we normally take students and train students we uh we, we're gonna a few of us are going to 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 get together and write as much as we can to get this published and our excavations in the next couple of years in Sordal Bay are really about just finishing off answering the questions so we've done a massive geophysics program across the landscape and a massive test pitting program um and there's a couple of 
parts of the landscape where we've not either we've found some things that we just need to look into uh, uh, or we've not quite finished the geophysics and the test pitting so um it's a case of bringing those to a, to a close whilst we're also finishing the, the writing finishing all the post decks we've got a lot of samples and things that we that all need processing but the nice thing is that well so one of the things that has grown very organically in this project is not just uh, our exploration of this amazing multi-period landscape through time but also us, us as a team so phil and i who phil richardson and i who started it in 2006 very oliver harris joined us um so you might know ollie's name because he wrote um archaeological theory in the new millennium with craig Sipola, and that's like a, a nice a lovely lovely textbook and um so ollie phil and i have directed the project together uh, over time and our team of of lovely staff has sort of grown and that's often been people who've dug with us and we've done quite a lot of work on how we dig and experimented with how we dig and how we work as a team and how we work with students and all of that kind of stuff our plan is to never stop excavating in Merkin <laughs> for the rest of our lives so certainly that's my I, i'm pretty clear that that's ollie and phil's plan but it's definitely mine. And so we need to finish Swordle Bay. But then one of the wonderful things that's come out of our work there is um, that, that there's now local archaeological history and, well, uh, Ardner Merkin History and Archaeology Association. I can't remember the acronym for them now. I'll find their, I'll find their details. Um, and Phil with Archaeology Scotland has played a really important role in, in working with them. So they're all now doing loads of excavation, um, well, and investigation as well, mostly around the kind of post-medieval um, occupation of Ardnamurkin, because it had a huge sort of big farm, loads of farming communities right up until the Highland Clearances. Uh, so they're doing quite a lot of work on that um, through the Adopt a Monument scheme, which is uh, which is really cool. So uh, they're doing some work on Faskadale Ice House, which was a major part of the kind of uh, early Victorian salmon fishery of the fisheries on the west coast of Scotland. And there was like steamers that went between Ardnamurkin and Glasgow with like loads of, of, of salmon and things. So uh, Cladendris is one of the monuments that's part of Adopt a Monument and Faskadale Ice House and some of the other monuments and they're about sort of the community taking a, a role in sort of investigating these sites and keeping an eye out for them and things so it's really lovely there's loads of stuff going on and as a result people are sort of starting to, to notice and find more in the landscape so the joy is that in the in the next couple of years we're wrapping up our work in Sordal um in order that we and with the aim of getting it published in the next in the next couple of years but the long term is that there's so much archaeology there it's it's so joyously isolated that, that everything is very well you know there's not been deep plow farming so everything's really well preserved so it's going to be a case of just going back and 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 picking up on sites that we've noticed elsewhere and so on and so forth and digging there and having a lovely time there forever and ever and ever that's the plan <laughs> so it's good wow. it's a good plan yeah i mean it certainly sounds like there's enough going on there to last a lot longer and um, well hopefully at some point you can actually go back and dig it um you know <laughs> fingers fingers toes everything crossed um yeah it sounds like a really really wonderful site i was looking at some of the um we were actually set a couple of papers about um, Agnamurkin, so I was reading about 
that sort of thing. And it's, it's, it's a really, really wonderful site. And I think it's a really lovely sort of way that um, you guys are doing it in that it's quite an organic team and you sort of be bringing in students. And I think it's really, really lovely the way that it's working. And I'm just really hoping that it gets to go back at some point soon enough that I might be able to go. Definitely not, you know, selfish motivation or anything, but <laughs> yeah, it sounds really, really cool. Oh, no. <laughs> It'd be lovely to have you know it'd be so nice it it, it it's been it, it's one of the things that we that it's we've constantly had students on the project and they've played such an important part of it like with the viking boat burial a it was one of a university of manchester student drew a kind of reconstruction drawing of it uh just you know for fun and then when it hit the media people were like well have you got a reconstruction drawing and we were like yes we have and then that played like quite an important part in sort of communicating it to the to the rest of the world and things so it's you know it's those kind of things are, are, are really important to us so yeah hopefully we will be doing it for a long time and yes you would be very welcome <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for, for telling me about that. I, I didn't realise there was so much there, if I'm honest. I mean, I've heard about the, the, the Viking boat burial, but I think that's kind of like, that's the thing that people hear and go, oh, yes, I, I want to know about that. But it's it's nice to hear that, you know, there's obviously a lot more going on there and sort of how it all started very organically is is, is really lovely. It's, really, it's, it's a sweet story without trying to sound cheesy, but it's, it's a nice story in that it's gone on for so long it just yeah i think it's it's very uplifting it is, to hear it's a nice story and i think like if uh, if there's anything to take from it it's that if you're sort of uh, overcome with a wash of uh like youthful uh enthusiasm and optimism go crucial thing you if you sort of see something and you think i could dig that you know within obviously get all the proper permissions from Legally. landowners and so on Legally. and so forth but you know like it's it's uh yeah within uh, the the legal requirements it's 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 a really wonderful thing to do and it's been and empowering to to go and be involved in such a lovely place for so long it's uh it, it it's feels it's it, it's it's so it's so cool and uh with the project you know people have met there and got married from there and had babies from there and <laughs> dogs and so on and, <laughs> not from there but like they've met there is one uh is the child of some people who are met on the project and this child's initials are atp which is advising <laughs> that the that is uh so um yeah there's a uh, it's it's good it's a it's a lovely place ah oh, it's been very nice to uh spend uh like a bit of time just thinking about it now i've got them on the american face ache from smelling so much oh about yeah it. so that's a nice that is a <laughs> thank you oh, well thank you for telling about it it's really lovely to hear about it i shall um let you get on with your day but thank you for, for talking to me it's really really lovely to hear and yes i i shall keep everything crossed that hopefully either publications or digging it will will come soon <laughs> cool. so yeah uh thank you so much for talking and uh have a blast.